Horse of a Different Color by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1968, Chapter 23, My Boyhood Sweetheart. <laughs> oh, Lord, thank you for a day I visited with the whole Atchison gang. Thank you that uh, each of them have been uh, raised and trained in such a way that we can have delightful fellowship. Thank you for the sweet time that we get to have with uh, one another on this earth and uh, enjoying relationships. Uh, Lord, relationships that cause us to uh, to see ourselves in light of how you've made us, in light of our time with others, and anticipation of the future as we get to walk together. We thank you for this chapter we get to read in Jesus' name. Amen. Nick and I were by no means expert meat cutters, but I'd used a bandsaw a good while a good deal while working as a carpenter during the war, and the piece of equipment made by the old German machinist was a lifesaver for us. While Nick finished his slaughtering and scrubbing that Friday forenoon, I broke down and processed the first beef carcass, going at it more like a sawyer than a meat cutter. I first sawed out what ordinarily would be ribros, the thick shoulder clods and rolls, the loins, rumps and rounds, then hung them back in the refrigerator to be sliced into steak. The brisket and lower half of the ribs I sawed into three-inch strips, cut the best portions into short rib chunks, and boned the rest of the leftovers for stew meat, hamburger, and sausage scraps. That afternoon and evening, Nick rendered shortening while I processed the second beef, then weighed out and ground meat for four 100-pound batches of sausage. Worried as I'd been about getting rid of fat back, if we used heavy hogs, Nick needed all we had for shortening so I had to use largely side meat for pork fat in the sausage meat. For each batch, I weighed the salt and seasoning carefully and mixed it with the meat before grinding, but held back the bread and water for the second grinding to be made just before the sausage was sold. We quit at 9 o'clock to get our cleaning done and be in bed by 10, but we're back on the job by 4 Saturday morning. Soon after sunrise, George Miner came over with Jack at his heels, I told Nick I'd be busy with the shipping till evening, evening, and then he, that he was to go ahead with the rendering until he had 600 pounds of shortening, even though he had to use partly leaf lard to make up the weight. In little more than an hour, and with only a few arm or whistle signals from George, Jack rounded up every hog on the place and brought them into the sorting pens. Until then, I had no idea what tremendous growth they'd made in the 23 days since their diet had been changed from silted alfalfa pasturage to all the corn they could hold. As near as George and I could estimate, the whole herd had gained about a third in weight. The smallest shoats taken on about 25 pounds apiece, and some of the biggest sows nearly 100. If I'd shipped two days earlier, I'd have sent every one of those heavyweights to market. But considering... But considering... The way shortening and sausage had sold to the farm trade, I thought best to hold on to them, and George agreed with me. We cut out and turned back to the pasture all hogs weighing under 210 pounds or over 285, together with any others that showed a blemish, or too fat for their length or too runty for their age. By noon, we'd culled them down to four pens of 60 hogs each, one lot weighing between 210 and 235 pounds, two that scaled between 235 and 260, and the fourth from 260 to 285. Allowing for a 10 pound shrinkage, shipping shrinkage, those divisions would hit the highest three, the three highest priced grades squarely on the button. 
Hauling fat hogs more than a few miles on a hot July day is hazardous business. But exercise, excitement, or crowding will overheat and kill them more quickly than hot sunshine. We loaded no wagons until they had all arrived, then assigned each man his place in line, those with the slowest horses at the front and those with the fastest at the rear. With no more than an occasional word or signal from George, old Jack did the loading all by himself, and no hog tried to turn back, squealed, or took a hurried step. One after another, the wagons were backed up to the loading chute. Eight or nine hogs waddled on board like portly commuters getting onto a streetcar. The tailgate was closed and the wagon pulled away. In less than an hour, all 28 wagons were on the road to Oberlin, and they arrived well before the tra train time without a single casualty. Getting the hogs off the wagons and into the cars was no more difficult than loading them at home had been. I'd had one of the farmers from whom I bought nubbins take a load to Oberlin, divide it between the four decks of my cars, and see that the watering troughs and the shipping pens were filled. As wagons were back to the chutes, the thirsty hogs unloaded themselves, drank their fill, and with a little urging by old Jack, trudged up the ramps and aboard the cars. As soon as the bills of lading had been made out, I wired my Omaha agent, giving him the car numbers. I asked him to wire me the results of the sale, to send a check for $4,600 to the receiver of Cedar of the Cedar Bluffs Bank, and the balance of the net receipts to the Farmers National. I didn't wait for the train to pull out, but drove George and old Jack home and was back in my white coat and apron by six o'clock. Nick had completed rendering 30, 30 buckets of shortening, processed the hogs he slaughtered the previous evening, and packed all the byproducts. We stopped only to wolf down a cold supper, then set to work cutting steaks, chops, and cutlets. Since I was charging my farm trade 20 cents a pound, it seemed only fair that they should have the best cuts. So we sorted out the center cut pork chops and the sirloin porthouse or porterhouse T-bone and rib steaks. In packing cutlets for the railroad order, we cut the ham and shoulder slices into roughly three pieces to the pound. Anything smaller or that was more than a third bone, we threw into the sausage scraps. We didn't cut the steaks to any particular size, but trimmed away any excessive fat or bone, stripped out the heavy sinews, and threw aside for stew or hamburger any pieces that weren't cut reasonably straight across the grain of the meat. To make up the full 200 pounds that had been ordered, we used mostly chuck and neck, then filled out with the poorer cuts from the rumps and rounds. It was 11 o'clock before we finished, and midnight by the time we'd scrubbed up and gone to bed. At 3.30, Nick woke me by rattling the stove lids as he cooked breakfast. By 4 o'clock, we were back on the job. The Ford engine that powered the grinder and saw backfiring in its indignation at being put to work so early. From our trimming, we'd accumulated enough scraps for another 100-pound batch of sausage, so I decided to make it, partly to teach Nick the formula, but more in hope that Effie might scare up more sausage business. I had Nick weigh the various ingredients, mix the seasoning with the meat, grind it together to distribute the flavor, then add the water-soaked bread and regrind the batch with our finest cutting disc. While we added soaked bread and reground the batches I'd started the night before, I washed and dried tin pans, filled them with sausage, weighed and wrapped orders for the farm trade, and packed them away in the icebox. The last 100 pounds of sausage we packed in a tub for the railroad order, and by uh, 7.30, I was on my way to Danbury. I felt rather guilty about having held out all the best steaks and chops for my farm trade and for having butchered mostly heavyweight sows when I told Mr. Donovan I planned to use bacon hogs. 
I got over all over the guilty feeling two minutes after reaching the railroad camp. Mr. Donovan had gone back to Omaha, but Tim came to inspect the meat and almost gloated over it. As he jabbed a finger into one piece after another, he called to the head cook. Come take a look at the meat we got here. It's that tender you can poke a finger clean through it and trimmed as good as you'd find at the best market. When I unloaded the tub of sausage, he turned the paper back and said, <clears throat> So that's the sausage the boss was all talking about. He scooped up a couple of ounces, sniffed it, and told the cook, But Dad, there is a tasty smell about it. Ripe a bit, see what it's like. He turned to me, pointed a thumb toward the next car, and said, Take the lard yonder to the head baker, got his t tomorrow's order, and I'll have mine ready when you come back. The baker was new on the job and didn't know how much shortening to order, so I told him I'd bring plenty every morning and leave as many full buckets as he had empty ones to return. When I went back to the kitchen, Tim was as enthusiastic about the sausage as Mr. Donovan had been. His order for the next morning and for most of the days until Thanksgiving was for 200 pounds of steak, 150 pounds each of sausage and pork cutlets. While I was making the delivery, Nick finished grinding the hamburger, cutting stew beef, and scrubbing the refrigerator shelves and floor, weighing and wrapping orders, cleaning equipment, washing utensils, and scrubbing the cutting room tables, sink, and floor kept us busy until 9.45. Toward the end of the evening, Nick watched the clock nervously, and the moment we finished, he asked, Okay, boss, I slaughter now? Thereafter, he did the slaughtering between 6 and 8 o'clock on weekday evenings, and from 9.30 Sunday mornings until the last customer had gone in the afternoon. Of the, 200, of the 100 who came to the place, I doubt that more than two or three, except the men who helped us with our first two days of building, ever caught a glimpse of him. Most people spoke of him as the Italian, but George called him the prairie dog. <laughs> For a prairie dog lives in his hole at sight of a stranger, or dives into his hole at sight of a stranger. If we were alone, Nick would work at the rendering vat or help me round up hogs. But if anyone turned in at the driveway, he'd duck for cover. The cutting room was his burrow, but the slaughterhouse, completely hidden from the road, the dooryard, and the house, became his sanctuary. That Sunday morning, we rounded up a couple of hogs and a heifer for butchering, and I'd just changed into a clean white coat when customers began driving into the dooryard. From then on, there was no let up. Fully a third of those who came had phoned in no order and were from surrounding townships. A good many were on their way to or from church, but others had probably come out of curiosity. By 10.30, the shop was so crowded that I could barely get through to the refrigerator. Fortunately, George and Irene Miner came over when I was so swamped I hardly knew which way to turn. Irene was good at figures, her writing looked like a school teacher's, and she knew everybody within 20 miles of Cedar Bluffs. When George saw the mess I was in, he sent her to write charge slips for me, then called to the crowd, let's get outside and give the boy a chance to work. He can take care of you twice as fast if there's only two or three of you in here at a time. With room to work and the meat all cut and processed, I had no difficulty in taking care of the trade. If some of the folks were skeptical when they came, they got over it by the time George had shown them through the refrigerator and cutting rooms. Buckets and pans proved as popular with the women who hadn't placed orders as with those who had. I sold every spare pan of sausage and cracklings and every bucket of shortening and byproducts and could have sold double the number if I'd had them. Although Effie had set my Sunday hours as being from 10 to 1, they didn't work out that way. It was past 3 o'clock when my last customer drove away, and there was then nothing left in the icebox except 500 pounds of steak, cutlets, and sausage that I'd held back for filling the railroad order next morning. 
I'd had dozens of compliments on the cleanliness of the shop, and everyone had been happy with the quality of the meat, the prices, and the charge accounts. Before leaving, nearly every man told me he'd have a hog, a calf, a cow, or a load of corn to turn in on his bill whenever I wanted it. Nick and I hadn't eaten since 3.30 that morning, so when George and Irene left, I started a fire and put a kettle of potatoes on to boil. After I washed up, I put on a pot of coffee and whacked up a big batch of biscuits. While they were baking, I set the iron, big iron skillet on to get smoking hot, picked out the two biggest steaks in the icebox, laid them on the skillet to broil, and shouted for Nick to come and get it. Then pork and beef he'd dressed that forenoon wouldn't be chilled enough for cutting with the saw before morning, but we needed shortening for delivery before, well, with the railroad order. To have it cooled out and ready, Nick rendered that afternoon, stripping the leaf and fat back from the pork carcasses and suet from the beef. It was a one-man job, so I washed the dishes, posted the charge slips in the ledger, and brought the books up to date. During the whole day, I hadn't taken in a nickel, but the charge slips for the farm trade totaled $217.85. The railroad delivery had amounted to $112.50. The meat still in the icebox was worth $52.50, and the two cow hides would bring in the total up to $390. As near as I could figure... The seven hogs we'd butchered had cost $90, the heifers, $70, pans and buckets, $11, ice, $16, and bread, seasoning, etc., $3, leaving a profit of $200 before allowing for Nick's wages or investment write-off. I had sense enough to know I'd never have another day so profitable and that I'd probably lose 3 or 4% of my charge accounts. But I was reasonably sure that I hadn't set my prices too low and that the venture wouldn't end in failure. Effie always scolded at me for working too hard, but my roughest times were those when I had no work to do. Since the Wilsons left, I'd been too busy to be lonely and had little time for fretting and worrying. But when I finished my bookkeeping that Sunday afternoon, I was stuck. No meat cutting could be done until the carcasses were thoroughly chilled, and there was nothing I could do to help Nick with the rendering. I got out the little Bible that had been my father's and tried to read, but couldn't keep my mind on it. When I found myself thinking about the folks back home, I realized I was lonely. And the one I thought most about was Edna Hudgens. Edna's folks moved to Medford, the Massachusetts city where our family lived, while I was farming with my grandfather in Maine. She went to our church, sang in the choir with my sister Grace, and they became close friends. When I came home on my 16th birthday, Grace fixed up a date for me, and Edna became my girl. When we were 17, I asked her if she'd marry me when we were old enough, and she said she would, but our engagement broke up in a quarrel about the ring. It was a quarter-carat blue-white diamond, and it took me more than a year to save the $25 that it cost. Edna was graduating from high school in the class I'd have been in if I could have gone on from grammar school, and it seemed to me it would be almost the same as having made the grade myself if my girl were there, wearing my engagement ring. For months, I'd saved every penny that wasn't needed in the family, got the $25 together just in time, and bought the ring the day before graduation. That evening, I took Edna to choir practice, <clears throat> but didn't mention the ring until we were on the way back to her house. Then I showed it to her under an arc light at the corner of a little park, slipped it under her finger, and told her I wanted her to wear it to the graduation exercises. For some reason, she didn't want to start wearing it until afterward. Having set my heart on it as I had, my feelings were hurt, and I didn't have any better sense to tell her that if she didn't love me enough to wear my ring to the graduation, she didn't love me enough to marry me. 
I could never remember who said what after that, except that Edna told me not to get the idea that ring, the idea that ring was a slave bracelet, stripped it off her finger and held it out toward me. That was before I'd learned to control my temper, and it was the best lesson I ever had. I snatched the ring and threw it as hard as I could toward a shrubbery patch, then walked her home and left without either of us saying another word. Morning, I was up before sunrise and crawled through that shrubbery on my hands and knees for more than three hours, but I didn't find the ring. I wasn't man enough to go and tell her how ashamed and sorry I was for having made a fool of myself, so she wasn't my girl when I went away to work in the munitions plant during the war. But I didn't want any other girl. When I came home after the armistice, it was discovered that I had diabetes and might live only six months, so it would have been senseless for me to try patching up our engagement then. I went to see her, though, before starting west. We didn't mention love or our engagement, or that I might not live very long. But we were both a bit choky when I left. In the nearly three years I'd been away, I'd never written to her, Edna, nor she to me, but I couldn't get her out of my mind that evening. After trying to read but losing my place half a dozen times, I went to my trunk, got out paper and envelope, and wrote her a long letter. I'd never told the family about my losses, but had written often about being in the livestock trading business. I knew Grace would have told Edna of it, so started my letter by telling about the hogs I'd shipped on Saturday, of the flooding ha flood having washed out the railroad, and that I'd been fortunate enough to get the meat contract for the re reconstruction job. I wrote a couple of pages about fixing up the place to handle the meat business, and ended by telling her my health was so much improved that I was no longer on a diet, but not that I'd quit it without my doctor's knowledge. When Nick finished the rendering, we went to bed, but it was a long time before I could go to sleep, and most of that time I was building or tearing down air castles. Since I'd started eating three square meals of meat, potatoes, and biscuits a day, I'd been able to work as hard as many hours a day without tiring as any man I knew, including Nick. And even though I was deep in debt, I was far from licked, for I'd made nearly $200 on that one day. As I lay there in the dark, I almost convinced myself that I was cured of diabetes and that I'd only be out of debt before and that I'd not only be out of debt before the railroad contract was completed, but would have made back what I'd lost on the stock, last stock Bob and I had fed. By that time, land and livestock values should have become stable, so I'd buy the place and go back into the feeding business. I'd also continue my butcher business with the farmers and keep on with my livestock trading and shipping. That should make me one of the most prosperous men in Beaver Valley. I'd build, I'd build a big house on the place with an inside bathroom and buy the best diamond ring in Kansas City. Then I'd go back to Medford and tell Edna how ashamed I was of myself for the way I'd acted and ask her to forgive me and be my wife. It was a beautiful air castle, but ordinary common sense made me tear it down. Every doctor I'd been to had told me there was no cure for diabetes even though I'd managed to outlive that specialist prediction by a couple of years. I could never have a wife and family. Then, too, the fabulous profits were no more than a pipe dream. I'd made a huge profit that day only because, with Effie's help and by throwing in a few tin pans and buckets, I'd unloaded every scrap of leftovers from the railroad contract on my neighbors. When the hot weather was past, the farmers would do their own butchering, as they'd always done, and without a market for my leftovers, I'd do well to break even on the railroad contract. As for the hogs on their way to market, I'd be lucky if they made $500. I have no idea how long I lay awake, but by 4.30, Nick and I were at work in the cutting room, and at half past seven, I left with the railroad order. Tim was still enthusiastic about the quality of the meat, 
gave me the same 500 pound order for the next morning and the baker had four empty shortening buckets to be replaced with full ones. On my way home, Effie yooed from the doorway of the telephone office. As I braked to a squeal, stop, squealing stop, she called, telegram for you. The station agent over to Oberlin phoned it's not more than five minutes ago. It sure sounds like good news. It was good news. The wire was from my Omaha agent and read, congratulations, three lots top to market net proceeds, 63.57.85. For a moment, I couldn't comprehend it, for that was within $215 of what I'd paid for all the hogs I'd bought, and I still had 314 in the pasture. Emotionally, I must have been put together backward. I'd taken it fairly well when the bottom dropped out of the livestock market in December, when the flood cleaned us out, and when the judge ruled against me on the partnership. When I read that telegram, my nerves went all haywire for a few seconds. My knees felt wobbly, my hands trembled, and I couldn't keep tears from coming into my eyes. Some people said that Effie Simmons was coarse and rough, but that was because they didn't know her very well. She understood what ailed me instantly, and a lot better than I could have explained it. There were half a dozen men on the street, and their attention had been attracted when she called me out with that telegram, called me out that there was a telegram for me. But before anyone had a chance to notice that I was having trouble, she stepped back inside her office and pulled me with her. Out of sight from the street, she hugged me against her, but only for a second. If it had been longer, I'd have broken down and blubbered like a baby, but she knew that too. Turned me loose and gave me a good solid slap on the back. The kind of lickings you've You've run into this past year are mighty tough for a kid your age to take, she told me. And don't forget that the folks hereabouts know it. That's why some of us are so scared you've gone and set your meat prices way too cheap. That slap on the back pulled me together as nothing else could have. Without the farm trade, I'd be licked again, I told her. But if I can hold on to it and get rid of my leftovers, I can make a good profit at these prices. You don't need to fret about the farm trade, she told me. As long as you give the folks the kind of stuff you've turned out so far, along with the price and credit and free pans and buckets, you couldn't drive them away. I don't suppose you've made sweethearts out of the butchers over to McCook and Oberlin, but you've sure made a heap of friends up and down this valley and on both divides. Now you trot along home and give me a chance to get line calls out, or it'll be noontime before I have today's orders ready for you. I didn't let myself build any more air castles, but I've seldom been happier than when I left Effie's office. Thanks to George Miner's hog cycle theory, my only cost for enough pork to fill a railroad contract and an equal amount of farm business would be for corn to feed the hogs still in my pasture. If, as Effie believed it would, my farm trade held up, there seemed a reasonably good chance that I might work my way out of debt by the end of the year. From that day, our butcher business settled into a routine. Nick and I were up at 4 o'clock. By 7, I pulled away with the railroad delivery. And by eight, I was back with Effie's sheaf of farm orders. Some days I worked in the cutting room with Nick until noon, and sometimes for only a couple of hours, depending on the size of the orders. Then I had the rest of the day to take care of my trading business, haul ice, take hides to the buyer at McCook, and bring back our express shipments, or run other necessary errands. I was always home in time to have supper on the table at 5.30, and at 6, Nick retired to the slaughterhouse to replenish our meat supply. While waiting for customers to pick up their orders, I posted the books, and by 9 o'clock, we were in our bunks. Seldom more than a dozen farmers came of an evening, each picking up packages for his neighbors. But Sundays were a different matter. 
Every town along Beaver Valley had its own little non-sectarian church, but people who attended a church of any particular denomination had to drive to McCook or Oberlin. Then, too, farm people liked to visit with their neighbors, and in western Kansas, anyone living within 10 miles is a neighbor. But those who went to separate churches had no meeting place to gather and visit. My place, being on the McCook-Oberlin Road, was easy for those going to church in either city to drive past, and soon became the meeting and visiting place for not only churchgoers, but the whole community. They'd begin arriving before 10 o'clock, and it was often after 4 when the last one drove away. Few stayed more than an hour. But whenever I found a chance to glance outside, the yard was full of flivers, carriages, buckboards, and spring wagons. The men always gathered in a single group by the windmill to discuss crops, the reason for the depressed grain and livestock markets, and the sins of the government. The women never gathered in a single group, but in knots of four or five, or visited with one another in flivers and carriages, and it might be that a little gossip was exchanged. But few wives went home without a bucket of shortening, a pan of sausage, or a bundle of meat the size of a watermelon. We got a few advance orders for Sundays. To get ready for the big rush, Nick and I scaled out and wrapped all such items as stew beef, hamburger, short ribs, and side meat in five-pound packages, but no farmer's wife asked to have one broken. After the first week, we cut few steaks and chops ahead, for most of the women preferred to select a particular round, loin, ham, or set of ribs from the refrigerator and tell me how thick they liked the slices and watch as I cut them with a saw. I never could have handled so much cut-to-order business if Irene and George Minor hadn't, quote, happened over, end quote, every Sunday. She to help with the wrapping and billing, and he to fetch and carry between the saw and refrigerator. The railroad business soon settled down to about 50 pounds of shortening and 500 of meat a day. Although slightly less in poundage, the farm trade nearly equaled the railroad business in dollars, and by occasionally switching from tin pans and buckets to enamelware kettles and bowls, I had no trouble in selling every scrap of leftovers and byproducts. Then, too, the meat business helped my livestock trading. As I made my trading rounds, one man after another would say, How about taking this hog, or it might have been cow, calf, or steer, in on my meat bill? I'll fetch it down the next time I come for meat, and you can credit me with whatever's right. I never made a profit on those animals, but allowed within a cent a pound of the latest radio quotation. When I bought mortgage stock from a customer, he always had me take the amount of his bill out of the percentage the bank would allow me to pay him in cash. And from August 7th until Thanksgiving, there was never a Saturday when I didn't ship at least one carload of stock. And from among the cattle I bought, I always picked out the best heifers for butchering. Although I made a fair profit on all but two or three of the carloads I shipped that fall, I made money faster than ever before or since in my life on a couple of carloads I didn't ship. One Saturday in mid-October, I drove two carloads of fat steers to Oberlin. When I got them there, the largest shipping pens were filled with sheep and lambs. The gate between them was open, and two double-decked stock cars were spotted on the siding. There was still a couple of hours till train time but a man with two teenage boys and four nondescript dogs was trying unsuccessfully to drive the sheep on into the cars. Though obviously a farmer, the man was a stranger to me, and it was evident that he was no stockman. I wanted to be friendly, so went over to tell him that the easy way to load sheep was to tie a bleating lamb at the far end of each deck and stand aside to close the doors when the curious youths went in to investigate. I should have known better, because the man was angry. But I climbed onto the gate waited for a lull in his swearing, and called, Can I lend you a hand, mister? He glared up at me and shouted, You tend to your own business, leave me to tend to mine. Now get out of here. 
I got out, penned, and watered the steers and went uptown for supper. On the way back, an hour later, I heard what sounded like a riot in the shipping pens. Dogs were barking wildly, sheep bleeding in terror, men hooting, and above the bedlam, a booming voice yelling curses insanely. When I reached the siding, the fence around the sheep pens was crowded with other traders and stockmen, laughing, hooting, and enjoying the ill-tempered stranger's predicament. The pens looked like a two-ring circus in the midst of the grand finale, and each of them, bewildered, frightened sheep, were racing in a circle, two snarling dogs two snarling dogs snapping at their heels while a frustrated bar boy shrieked wildly and flailed them with a bullwhip. The man, his face purple with rage, stood in the gateway between the two pens like a tormented bull at bay. Just as I climbed onto the fence, he looked up and shouted, Who will give me a bid on these blasted sheep? I had no idea as to the value of sheep, but he was glaring right into my face, and I wanted to start the bidding plenty low, so I called out $4 a head. Sold, he bellowed. In a split second, another trader shouted, $5 a head. Sold, I yelled, right in unison with the irate man in the gateway. He tried his best to run a bluff that he'd never sold to me. But there were too many witnesses present, and I had a lot of good friends among them. Given 10 minutes of quiet, the sheep forgot their panic and loaded easily. The count was 258. And though I'd been a sheep owner for less than two seconds, my profit was a good one. On the way home, I tried to figure out in my head the amount a man would make in an eight-hour day at $129 a second. <laughs> but lost track after passing $3 million. <laughs> So many things that Ralph experienced and learned. And I mean, one of them is, I mean, that we got two of them in this chapter, the anger or the, um, you know, the uh, bad decisions made when, when furious. B with the engagement ring and the man with a sheep uh, reminds us to be still, wait, and come back to address things when we're emotional later. I love you guys.